You are entering the Freedom Hut. The Mueller probe is poised to give us a look at what they finally got. Do we get to see the special counsel's cards in the days ahead? And what will it tell us about the possibility of impeachment? Also, in France, the carbon tax has gone down. That's right. The rioters got results. We'll talk about what that means for their economy and for ours coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Saxon Show, everybody. Great to have you with me. Apologies if my voice sounds a little funky or, or cracks or breaks. Um, I am not actually going through puberty right now. I just have a very bad cold. So uh, I am going to push through because we got work to do. Shields high and all that good stuff. Uh, we've, got, we've got some milestones in the special counsel situation to address right now. We have some milestones, some things coming up here that may finally be the beginning of the end of this nightmare, which uh, those of you who have been listening to the show for a while know, I've, I knew it was a disaster from day one. I knew this was going to turn into exactly what it is, which is a politicized witch hunt. It has been going on for 18 months, 567 days as of today. 567 days. That's how long this has been in the works. 33 people have been uh, charged with crime since this whole thing began. 13 Russian nationals, 12 intelligence officers. Uh, the number the, the number of people who... So wait, see, this isn't so interesting. You got to add those two up. So you got 20, 25 people they're putting out there as prosecuted in this whole thing. And those are Russian Facebook trolls. You know, they're trying to create now a a dossier, if you will. You see what I did there? A dossier to make it seem like this whole thing has not been a giant politicized uh, scandal, which is really what it is. A, A way of weaponizing politics of using the power of investigation and prosecution to settle political scores and differences to completely undermine the notion that both parties are treated the same way in the eyes of the law. You know, Democrats get away with it. Republicans don't. In fact, not only do Democrats get away with it, but Republicans get in trouble for things they didn't even do. That's the way our justice system seems to work at the very highest level. And that's a very damaging, very damaging perception for the American people to have overall. The only people who have pleaded guilty to this uh, that are in Trump's orbit are uh, Michael Cohen, who has pleaded guilty to tax fraud and campaign finance charges. Um, He is now uh, going to be finding out how long he's been. He's going to get sentenced. Former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. Paul Manafort pleaded guilty to financial and tax crimes. Rick Gates, conspiracy related to financial crimes and lying to the FBI. Papadopoulos, 
uh, lying to the FBI. And then you got that guy, Van Der Zwan, who also lied to the FBI. Not a single charge on the American side of this whole proposition, on the uh, you know American citizens who have had to face justice, or in this case, injustice, which is really what's happened. Not a single one has anything to do, anything at all to do, with colluding with the Russians, with trying to steal an election, anything, anything that would fall into that category. And now we have some, uh, now we have some things that uh, that are going to come up. We have some additional, uh, additional information that we can expect to happen here, uh, to to get released here in the next few days. And I, I think that what you'll find is that the Flynn. Because, you know, you've got the Flynn sentencing coming up. You've got, uh, you know, Cohen, his whole situation. Closed-door testimony with James Comey, although you're not going to... Sancta Comey is not going to give you anything interesting there. And then there's all this speculation around whether or not the final Mueller report is going to be released, period, but also going to be released in the next few weeks. And with all of those things, with all those different realities swirling around right now, those possibilities, uh, I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that this has been the greatest political sham, the biggest injustice uh, perpetrated by the Department of Justice in my lifetime. Uh, There is nothing that anyone can say on this, based on all the facts we have so far, that will change my mind. Uh, I am certain that this is corrupt. I am certain that this has been unfair and wrong from the start because of the origins of this whole investigation, but also when you see in in the processes uh, that have been conducted here such a clear anti-conservative, anti-Republican bias, it's jaw-dropping. It's jaw-dropping. And... This is what remind. This is where you really have to get into the fact that this is a uh, a revenge of the establishment. That's what's pushing. I, I know it's the Democrats and Hillary, but it's also more than that, because you know you had all these former uh, members of the Justice Department sign some letter today saying that they they disapprove of Whitaker being the acting Attorney General. The truth is, if you were to go back and, and look at, at at any number of senior Department of Justice officials, I'm I'm sure that they they despise Trump. I'm sure they think that Trump is is you know bad for all kinds of reasons, and it's because if you've been working for the government for a long time and you've bought into the government as generally a a positive actor and one that 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 is really the uh, the, the shepherd of the American people. You know, the government's not there to protect our rights. This, this is one of the problems. For people who work in the bureaucracy, it's not that the government protects our rights. It's that the government is there to make us all better. Better than we would otherwise be. I mean, the government is there because we need guidance from the people that know more than us, that have a better understanding of how things really are than we do and are in touch with their aspirations. It is public service, after all, that they say they're doing. Um, But whether it's Manafort or Cohen or Corsi, who we'll talk more about later, uh, none of these cases support the basic 
premise of this entire investigation, which was that the president of the United States, through intermediaries on his campaign, cheated, used the Russians to get information on Hillary so that he could win the election. None of it. It's not there. So we're now 18 months into this, and for what? 18 months into this, only that we can come to the recognition that the left is so dug in that they'll never change their mind on this. It does not matter what the fact pattern is. It does not matter what they dig up here at the very end. The Congress is just going to pick up wherever Mueller leaves off, meaning the Democrats are going to start running investigations. The Democrats are going to push this thing as far as they can because they get political mileage out of it. There's no effort to find justice and truth in any of this. They don't care about the lives that have been ruined, the reputations that are destroyed. I mean, does anyone really believe that General Flynn lied to these FBI guys about this because he was so worried about finding out what? He had a legitimate phone call with the Russian ambassador. There was no problem. There's no reason for him to lie. People say, well, then why did he lie? And I'm saying, well, maybe they just are saying he lied. Maybe the people that, like Mueller, are pushing these uh, BS cases, are going along with these inflated prosecutions. Maybe they're liars. Oh, Buck, they can't be liars. Really? Why? You mean like Deputy FBI Director, then Acting FBI Director Andy McCabe? He can't lie? He lied under oath several times in order to cover up his conduct in this whole thing. Do we think Andy McCabe is the only one? You don't think that Comey lies? Please. You don't think that Sally Yates is just a social justice warrior in the disguise of a boring bureaucrat? Please. This is all there for you to see. You just have to look. And you can't accept what they tell you to accept. You can't just believe the stories that are being concocted, in some cases out of thin air, like the meeting with Julian Assange and Manafort. That never happened, my friends. The Guardian, big international paper, came up with a story, what was it, a week ago? Just just a lie. Why would they believe a story that's a lie? Why would they, why would they destroy their credibility? Oh, because... There's an international hatred for Trump, too, because of so much of the truth that Trump represents. Because Trump is willing to say, you know, America is better than a lot of these other countries, and we're not going to bend over anymore, bend the knee, and say, sure, we're all the same. No, we're going to lead. We're going to do it our way. and We expect the respect that we deserve. Other countries, some of them don't like that. They don't like it at all. All right, uh, team, we've got a lot more show coming up. We've got more on the Mueller probe, and uh, I'm going to talk to you about these the riots in France, which have been successful in getting the gas tax revoked, uh, more on climate change there, and then Bush 41, and we got a jam-packed show. So stay with me. We'll be right back. Rough day in the markets today, my friends. I, I know we don't talk that much about, about the markets, and I, I want to get back to the Mueller probe here in, in just a few moments. Uh, rough day in the markets, though, and, and this I, I want you to pay attention to this just because you're going to see an emboldened left here. You're going to see, we're talking about Ocasio-Cortez and Warren and Sanders later on in the show, but it's it's very hard. People don't, you know, uh, the, the, the social justice warrior rhetoric doesn't resonate quite the same way when unemployment's at record 60-year low, when black and Hispanic unemployment, as it is currently in this country, is at its all-time low, when the stock market is, is doing incredibly well, 
Job growth is very strong. You know, people don't really want to hear that much about Marxism and redistribution of wealth. It's when things get scary. It's when the left has a crisis to exploit. That's when it's time for the rest of us to worry. And we, we may be heading into that territory, and, and there's a lot of factors. And I'll tell you one thing. One, one thing that you know about the economy is that everyone who tells you they have the answer doesn't have the answer. There's so many things that go into this. You're talking about a vast, a vast almost chaos system. When you're when you look at the entirety of the U.S. economy and its ties with the global uh, global economy, uh, it's I mean it's probably technically not a chaos system. But you know what I mean? It's so much going on that it's very hard to look at this and and pinpoint one thing as the reason for this. But you know when you have the Dow drop, whatever it was six hundred some odd points today, people are saying the economy's slowing down. There's some aspect of it that's certainly cyclical. Um, there is some aspect of it that is the result of our unwillingness, and this is a bipartisan unwillingness, to change our ways, to spend less money, to be less involved in, um, you know, l- l- less involved in saddling future generations with debt. You know, no one wants to do that. No one wants to touch Medicare, Medicaid. No one, no one seems to care that we're $20, $21 trillion in debt, but the numbers care. And eventually this will all catch up to us and eventually could be, you know, a few months from now. Now, I don't think that the global economy is going to completely tank and collapse. I think that if, you know, you're you're a betting man or woman, yeah, America is going to be wealthier in 10 years than it is today. I think that's a fair I think that's a fairly certain bet to make. But what does it look like for the Trump administration and conservatism in this country and limited government? If we have a president who is as embattled by the media as he currently is, with as much left-wing hatred for him as we have seen going on now for a long time, we have all those things. And on top of that, you have an economy that's in, that's in recession. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. This has been my concern all along. The way that you get a far-left really destructive candidate. I mean, someone described to me today that, that you know, Barack Obama, what people don't realize is that for entrepreneurs and, and businesses that weren't highly, highly entrenched and politically connected, that Barack Obama was like an eight-year waterboarding for American capitalism, which I thought was a pretty funny way of describing it. Um, but, you know, the truth is that if, if we have a recession, if we have this major setback, and it's going to take a while to come out of it your your recession is is going to be painful and then you got to dig your way out and that coincides with the 2020 election that's how i think you look i'll say it that's how i think you could end up with the president sanders as nuts as that may sound as much as we could sit here and say hold hold on hold on a second hold on a second you you can't spend 34 trillion dollars on medicare for all that you don't have i mean i I think uh, if, if you were to cut out all all defense spending, you would manage to get, well, we're spending basically uh, $800, $800 billion a year on defense. So if you're looking at, let's just call it $34 trillion of, of spending over a 10-year period for Medicare for All, it's essentially a complete doubling of the federal budget for all other, for all expenditures. It doubles the federal budget. You could get rid of all military spending. You wouldn't even put a dent in Medicare for all. Not even a dent. So, or I mean, maybe a dent, but 
not you get not even close to paying for it. I mean, you know, a fraction of it. So how do you get a a politician who's going to come into office and win when the numbers don't add up? When when there's clearly no way for anybody with a, a calculator and a basic grasp of facts to say, yeah, their policy works. Well, the way you do it, the way you make it all happen, is you pre- you prey upon people's fears. You prey upon their concerns that the the dollar is crashing, that they're not going to have a job, that their their industry is going away, and they're not going to be able to feed their families. And you say, I'll save you. I'll come along. I'll be the one who just give me more control. Just give me more power over uh, finances in this country, over everything, over the law, over the economy. And and I'm worried. I think we have a confluence of factors here that going into 2020, and we're already there. We're already at the beginning of the 2020 ramp. All right, this it, it, the the ramping up is happening now. I worry that as we get closer to that, what we're going to see is that you know, the economy starts to go bad, and the radicals on the left will be ascendant. Trump will just be completely under siege. And we could end up having a an electoral disaster befall us in 2020, one that would make, unfortunately, Trump's miraculous win feel like a distant memory. But I got to talk to you about Jerome Corsi and the special counsel. I don't want to skip past that. That's that's coming up here in just a moment. Stay with me. The key thing was that they wanted me to be the key link between it was going to be Roger Stone to me to Julian Assange. And then they'd have all their collusion together. It would be Roger Stone to Steve Bannon to Donald Trump and coordination with Assange. Except I figured out on my own, Assange had Podesta's emails. I'd never have met Assange. I've never talked to Assange or emailed him. And I have no contact with anyone who is in touch with Assange. And the prosecutors refused to believe this. So it led to grilling after grilling after grilling. You know, there's Jerome Corsi just saying that the prosecutors, the Mueller probe, you know, they they have a very clear agenda. And and, and I think we all know that that's been true from the start. But remember, you know, the prosecutors, we, we've come to accept that prosecutors are trying to get to a certain outcome. In this case, they are trying to prove that Trump colluded with Russia. And, and what he's saying, what Corsi is saying here is that it's very obvious in his dealings with them that that's they're, they're going after him now on a on a minor, not even really a lie, a, a misremembering of something that is not important and that they that they already knew. Remember that, too. He lied about forwarding an email. They had all of his emails. That's how they knew he lied. So they already knew that he was in contact with somebody. So why would he lie? And I don't mean that. Why would he lie? There must be something more there. I'm saying. Clearly, it's an error, a good faith error, not a, you know, he, he wasn't going to get away with it. I mean, if somebody, you know, if I sit down with the police and they say, all right, we've got your phone records in our hand. Who did you call last week? Name everybody you called last week. And I named, you know, seven of the eight people. Uh, I didn't leave off that eighth person because I think I'm going to, you know, you know, manage to drop that one off the radar. I just didn't remember. Right. That's effectively what they did to Corsi. But, but the, the, the more important point here is that he knows from having to deal with them that they're trying to get to a certain out. They're trying to prove that something happened, even though 
as any prosecutor, as any investigator will tell you, remember, as a special prosecutor, they're investigating something. They're supposed to be investigators. If the facts lead them away from the conclusion that a crime was committed, that's really important too. You know, it's, it's the cases that you don't bring, that you don't prosecute, that you step away from as a prosecutor that really define your judgment and your ability to get justice for people. You're not supposed to say, oh, well, you know, I was told to get this guy, so I'm just going to get him. And it's, it's very clear to me from what we've seen so far that this is all, that, that the, the end state here has already been determined. Trump did something bad. That's what Mueller thinks. Or, or rather, that's what Mueller wants to show, whether it happened or not. That's He wants to take Trump down for doing the bad thing. And every step that Mueller takes in the interim is meant to create that perception and, and, and make that the reality. It's not, oh, you know what? We don't have the information that we thought we would here. Maybe we should step away from this. Maybe this actually didn't happen the way... No, they're always just coming back with another version of it. By the way, you know, this reminds me of the Durst said this to me on my show first. I'm just saying. And then later he went on to say it on on some other shows. I think this was him on Fox. This is what Durst feels about this Corsi situation. Play clip eight. In 55 years of practicing criminal law, I have never heard or read of any case where a person was allowed to amend his testimony and then corrected it and was then threatened with indictment for the unamended original alleged lie. That just seems utterly unprecedented if those facts are correct. I think he would have a very defensible case and would have a pretty good chance of winning and probably uh, would be wise not necessarily to capitulate to the threats of prosecution. Isn't that interesting? Here you have, whatever you think of him and his politics, the Dersh is a seasoned seasoned uh, attorney and and a very sharp legal mind and he's saying Corsi should stand stand tall on this one assuming the fact pattern is what Corsi says it is and look I know people say Corsi is a conspiracy theorist whatever he's a smart guy uh you know this is not we're not dealing with Alex Jones here even though I know he works with Alex Jones uh Corsi strikes me as a pretty sharp individual um meaning that you know he his his synapses fire pretty quickly upstairs and, you know, this could be a real stumbling block. I mean, can you imagine for a second he refuses to take this? You know, they say they're going to charge him. He refuses to take the deal. He refuses to flip. What if he beats it? What if Corsi, and I know this is a little bit of supposition right now, and, and who knows, but imagine for a moment that the guy who's, like, working at InfoWars and, and, and has this long history with the, uh, he actually got into an exchange with, with Jamal from uh, from Hill TV, he works with me. Jamal's a Democrat, great guy. He's a Democrat, uh, and they got an exchange about the Obama birth certificate that just got that just got fiery because Corsi really does believe, or at least says he believes that the birth certificate that we've never seen the original. You know, and I, I see it and I'm like, oh my gosh, just anything, anything but the birth certificate discussion. I was, I was stuck on TV for that one, um, but I, you know, you can you can bring up all those issues, but. That guy, Corsi, may be the first one who stands up to the Mueller machine and wins. And what would that say? What would that tell you if, in fact, 
he fights this and we because because you know let me answer the question what that would show you is that sure enough this is just about perjury traps sure enough this whole thing has been find people find a way to twist the law to put them in criminal jeopardy to threaten to lock them up unless they tell you everything they know about everything uh, and Dershaw also said that by the way play nine the modus operandi of the special counsel is to get as many people as possible to commit perjury or to lie and then squeeze them uh, and use pressure on them to have them testify against the major targets of the investigation. And what Judge Ellis said appropriately is the risk of that is not only will some people sing, but they will compose, they will elaborate, they will tell the story right. even better because they know that the better the story, the better the deal. That's right. And here's what everyone really needs to remember. Here's what you won't hear from anyone else, but I can see this one coming. With Corsi, what they want isn't necessarily for him to give the smoking gun of Russia-Trump collusion that is a criminal issue. All they need is Corsi to go on the record for having been part of some murky effort to get in touch with WikiLeaks to get this information. And then what they have and what they will release in the final special counsel report is the politically fatal accusation of collusion that should be impeached, not collusion that should be prosecuted. That's what they're trying to get from Corsi. Volunteering to serve in World War II as, an, as I was going on to serve as ambassador, CIA director, uh, congressman, vice president, president, a whole life of public service. Donald Trump has been a life of service to himself. They both believe that the presidency is bigger than themselves, which is not something that, that this president always adheres to. But I think this is also a uh, 24 hours of nostalgia about what leadership used to look like in this country. There's a great clip from 1980 mm -hmm. uh, when George H.W. Bush is challenged on his how tough he is mm -hmm. and he talks about toughness is about having values and standing for them being principles toughness is not attacking he understood that the press wasn't the enemy of the people and even said basically at the end of the day we're all in this together and i will be here for you just like i know you would be here for me what a remarkable difference between 1988 and 2018 a lot of a lot of kind of backhanded praise for Bush 41 from the media establishment. You know, a lot of, well, we'll put aside the things that we disagree with them on just so we can bash Trump. You know, there's just there's there's all this dishonesty around around the conversation. I would say this to you. I mean, the, their favorite the, the media's favorite thing about Bush 41 is that he was a one term Republican president. Let's start with that. That is their number one favorite thing. Uh, is that maybe if he were more of a political pugilist, if he wasn't so gentlemanly in his approach, um, he might have won a second term. Although, you know, look, I, it's a woulda, coulda, shoulda, who really knows. Um, but, you know, Bush Bush 41, when he was in office, they were saying that he was a warmonger, uh, you know, no blood for oil. I mean, these were all the things that you would hear about at the time. And now, you know, some of those same voices are coming out to say, well, 
let's just take this as an opportunity to uh, to bash to bash Trump. And look, Trump went. Trump is he's he's appearing at the funeral. You know, I think he's handled this. I think he's handled this well. I also think that the country's uh, you know fascination with every minute of the remembrance and the aftermath of of a president's life. It's interesting. It does feel, and look, I have a lot of respect for Bush 41. Now, I never met him. I obviously met his son a couple times when I was at the CIA and and gave him some briefings. I never met Bush 41. Um, But I I am just going to say that the the, the pomp and circumstance surrounding, maybe this is just from the media coverage angle of it, right? Look, the guy should have a safety. But the pomp and circumstance of some of this, it does start to feel a little bit like we have a, you know, this is like the 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 king, and I mean this in a in a monar- monarchical sense, right? That the monarchy has lost one of its own. Uh, you know, there's there are there are limits, I think, to what good taste and uh, and prudence dictate for how much time and 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 how much the you know the country should have to focus on the, the the passing of a future president. I'm not saying we've passed those limits. I'm just saying, you know, we need to be aware of it. I think there's a lot of, and this ties into a, a bigger conversation that I always want to have, which is I don't think that we should, um, I don't think that we should call former members of government by their, you know, I don't think that you should still be speaker when you were speaker of the House and aren't anymore. I don't think you should be called ambassador even when you're no longer ambassador. I don't think... You know, uh, any government-appointed title, I don't think you carry that with you the rest of your life. And I, I start to see some of this, some aspects of, of an entrenched politi- political class here that really does feel, I mean, how different is is it really from, you know, the, the, the court of King Louis the whatever? You know, there's a, you know, the, the whole nation is supposed to, look, I mean, anybody who served for un, under uh, under a president or had personal contact with a president, people can feel however they want about this. But if I knew the man, obviously, I'd have a particular connection to it. I just think that the the expectation, the, the expectation for a, a kind of uh, national, not just national mourning, but also adulation whenever a, a, poli- a politician, which is quite honestly what we're talking about, uh, passes away. It just—I'm just saying—I think we should be aware so that it, it does not carry over into a a sense of you know we are celebrating our 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 what's the you know our our permanent not just a permanent political class but celebrating nobility. That's that's you know we're we're not there with Bush forty one because he's a Republican, but I'm I'm telling you, wait until. You know, the media has a, a Democrat president who passes away. Remember, and this is also the good thing here is you got Bush 41, a, a life incredibly well lived and and, you know, incredible service. I mean, you know, the guy died of old age. And he had done it all, man. I mean, he he had done it all. Um, so as much as a, as much as a funeral can be a celebration of someone's life, I think Bush 41's is. But I, I just noticed that there's this, you know, you know, everybody. There, it feels a little bit like there's almost a forced reverence around this, which, and I mean for those of us who are walking around just going about our, our day-to-day lives, you know, every time we open a newspaper and everything else, this is the this is the main the main focus, and there's a lot of stuff still going on in the world. There are a lot of things happening here, a lot of concerns, a lot of problems. Uh, we're going pretty deep into 
okay, let's uh, let's not have our third 24-hour news cycle where the the main thing we're talking about is the you know the I, I don't know the, the sort of circumstances and ceremonies surrounding the the passing of of a former of a former president. I, I know that maybe maybe I'm off on my own on this, but I just. You know, I don't I don't like titles of nobility for people that serve. And this is separate from the Bush conversation, but I don't like titles of nobility. I don't like people that walk around or are still called congressmen when they're not a congressman. You know that. No, we, we, we should not have that. And, and also, you know, the passing of George H.W. Bush is is deeply sad for his family members and for his friends and people who knew him the way it would be. But that's true of anyone who passes away. Right. So. I, I don't know that the rest of the country should should be told that we have to feel any way about this other than, you know, being respectful. Uh, you know, I just it's also I'm somebody who the, the few funerals, thank heavens, I've been to very few. The few uh, funerals I've been to, I'm never. Um, you know, I, I never really know what to say at them to anybody. And I know I'm not, I know this is a common thing. A lot of people feel that way. But um, at a Bush at, at this funeral, though, at Bush 41's funeral, I think it'd be pretty easy. This guy served his country and led a great life and was incredible what he contributed and you know may rest in peace and be with with God and the angels. Um, that's my take. But then there's there's Nicole Wallace over at uh, MS. Speaking of the forced reverence, she's talking about how, uh, you know, the, the, the Bush motorcade was actually arriving on Capitol Hill. And, and at that very moment, here's what Nicole Wallace of MSNBC. So you got to you got to imagine on the screen you have the funeral motorcade arriving on Capitol Hill, and then Nicole Wallace has the following, play 11. I think what everyone's getting at is that under Donald Trump, the office of the presidency has been debased in a way that is unimaginable for people who served every past president. I think what's lost in this moment is our reverence and our dependence and, our, and, and the way we need and rely upon the elegance and the traditions of the presidency. And the elegance, the elegance of the presidency. Did we did we have the elegance of the presidency during the Clinton years? Did we have a a president who was a a model of upstanding and upright behavior for eight years with with Clinton? Uh, I just the, the the select the selectivity here of what what parts of Trump and his persona we. Uh, we pick on and, and what we leave out from from Democrats. I mean, you know, everything feels like a partisan battle these days, even when describing aspects of the presidency that you think would be nonpartisan. They somehow turn it into a commentary on Trump. Everything now has to be a commentary on Trump. It's really disturbing. But, you know, even Bush's funeral, they're politicizing it. Snippy.com. That's right. By now, you've probably heard me talk about it. Snippy.com is a new social media site out there. And thousands of my listeners have already joined Snippy. They're expressing their opinions. They're having a great time chatting each other up there. And if you want an unbiased social media platform that's all about conversation and building community around topics and issues, Snippy.com is for you because it's all about freedom of expression. Guarantees you the ability to discuss topics freely without any suppression. Snippy's a place where everyone can put their thoughts out there, share their opinions, and not worry about left-wing biases coming in and crushing the conversation. It is completely free to join, all right? This is a free product. It's open to everyone. So go check it out. Got nothing to lose and a lot to gain. Snippy.com, no shadow banning, no suppression of conservative thought ever. Now with an updated user interface and exciting new features. Also available in the Apple App Store and now available for Android. 
Snippy is your new alternative social media. Again, check it out for yourself at snippy.com. You're wrong when you say that America dropped out of the Paris Agreement. It is the states and the cities, it's local governments that control 70% of our emissions. The United States is still in. Yes, we have a Meshuggahne leader in Washington that is not in, that is out. But remember that America is more than just Washington or one leader. I wish that I could be the Terminator in real life to be able to travel back on time and to stop all fossil fuels when they were discovered. Be the Terminator. Go back and say, stop driving your cars. Stop all your economic progress. Stop spewing the CO2 in the air. That would be the worst action movie ever. What are you doing with all your economic progress, your industrialized nation? You have to stop it. Schwarzenegger was at a... What was this now? In the southern Polish city of Katowice... I don't know how you say that, where you had uh, thousands of international decision makers holding their uh, holding negotiations at a U.N. climate conference known as COP24. I've got, oh, my gosh, I've got so many thoughts on this. One of them, what is the following? Uh, a lot, these, these climate change conferences are, are really a, a kind of internationalist subculture unto themselves. All these people get to show up. Somebody else is, is generally foot in the bill, right? A lot of different governments and NGOs and if you were going to show up at these conferences, they all get to feel very important and they get to they get to pretend like they're part of of saving the world. And I don't mean that in exaggerated in an exaggerated form. I mean they actually think that they are part of saving the world. And they will bear no consequences as a result of this. They will suffer not at all. And so that's why who wouldn't want to be a part of this, right? Once you get in, once you get in good with this climate change crowd, you get to go to the conferences, probably fly on some fancy private jets to get there. And, you know, the, the, what Trump is, I'm sorry, what uh, Schwarzenegger was saying about Trump, Schwarzenegger saying that, you know, maybe the president is out, but all the local and state governments are in. This just goes to show you, I mean, who cares? Who cares what? You know, Vermont thinks about climate change. Who cares even what California thinks about climate change? Other than the residents who live there have to live, who have to deal with the uh, crappy policies that will come out of all of this. But in terms of the difference that it can make to the the problem, such as such as it is, or in my in my estimation, as it isn't, they're not even putting a dent in this. You know, there's just no sense of of perspective or context with these climate change alarmists. You know, I mean, here here's a way to a good way to describe this. I think you know, microbiology. I believe in microbiology. Microbiology is real. Germs are real. Viruses, bacteria, all that stuff. That's all real. Now, I live in a world surrounded by viruses and bacteria, and and on any and I and one of them has invaded my nostrils and my throat right now, and that's why I sound weird and. I'm having a little bit of a tough time today speaking because I'm sick. Uh, but, you know, it, it, the reality for me is that I'm not going to sit around and be super worried about possibly, you know, getting some terrible pathogen. Because while that could happen, I think it's unlikely enough that I'm not going to worry about it. Now, 
when you look at that most recent climate change report, the worst case scenario, which is very unlikely, is so far off and I would argue so manageable that to spend any time at all now worrying about it is similar to, say, walking around saying, oh, my gosh, I need to wear surgical surgical gloves and a mask all the time because there are germs everywhere. And if I don't, I'm going to die. Um, that it is true that if you don't walk around with surgical surgical mask and gloves constantly, you you are at a slightly greater risk of picking up an infection and you could die from that infection. How many of you worry about that? I'm guessing, you know, one or two of you right now are like taking off, slowly taking off your gloves and mask. But I'm guessing most of you are saying, yeah, that's not, it's not something a normal person would do. The risk profile just isn't high enough. It doesn't justify those precautionary measures. Well, what we see now is that with climate change, it, it, they say, do you believe in climate change? It's like saying, do you believe in microbiology? Yeah, I believe that the climate is changing. Of course I do. I just don't worry about it, and I, and I don't think it's nearly as big of a problem, if a problem at all, as these other people who have bought into this idea. And it's an idea that I would note gives a tremendous amount of latitude for the redistribution of wealth via the government, for the redistribution of wealth from the first world to the developing world, from you know America to third world countries and Europe to third world countries. You know That's all. There's a lot of other goodies that are thrown into this, as well as you, know, you get to go to these... For some people, you get to go to these climate change conferences. If you're Al Gore, you get to make ridiculous movies that a lot of very credulous people go to see and think are really important, and then they realize that everything he said in the movie was wrong, but, oh, I'm sure he'll make another one. And this is why this revolt by the Yellow Jackets, uh, the Gilets Jaunes in, in France, is, I think, resonating with so many Americans. And that's why they've backed off. I mean, the, the big news today was that the French, uh, the, you know, the, the French government isn't going to put this gas tax in place because the people are so angry about it. And they realize that the French people overall aren't supportive of this. And it's like, yeah. And, and understand that this is just because it's a tax on something that people feel and understand and know. And the problem, that, you know, from the climate changers perspective. The problem that they run into is that what they need to do is what they usually do is make sure that the costs of combating climate change are hidden. Make sure that the, uh, the, the downside of these policies is so spread out in the broader economy that individuals can't get to that critical mass of anger that they will be mobilized and then do some, mobilized to do something about this. That's the mistake they made with this gas tank. Because people go to the gas tank, go to a gas tank where they're already paying over six dollars, and now they're going to be paying, you know, six dollars thirty cents, that equivalent. I know it would be in euros, but they say, you know what, this is crazy. What am I? I'm paying this money for what? You know, I mean, you know, turn down for what? They probably ask themselves. Although maybe not. I don't even know what turn down for what means, but it's fun to say. Uh, so they're at the, uh, you know, they're at the pump and they understand that people talk about in this country, you know, the pain at the pump. I mean, how much do you pay? You know, in this we're, we're paying two something a gallon for gas. Imagine if all of a sudden to fill up a, a tank of gas for your car and you had to commute every day. Because a lot of in these French cities, the cities are not too expensive. So people have to come from pretty far away. And I'm somebody I'm very sy- sympathetic. To this I hate commuting. 
I hate having to travel distance to work. It just strikes me as, you know, it's a huge waste of time. And it really costs you, uh, you know, a piece of your life that you never get back. Imagine you're driving an hour and a half each way and you're paying three times as much. You'd be pretty upset, too. But once the, this is the Achilles heel of climate change alarmism is when the policies are no longer theoretical and the, the pain is made real. That's when all of a sudden you have people that step back and say, hold on a second. How how certain are we about these different measurements? How how clear is it really that if we don't take these drastic actions, terrible, awful, horrible things are going to befall this country? Because if the answer is, you know, one in a hundred, I think I'm going to ride this out. I think I'm going to let the system that we have, by and large, in the developed world, capitalism, private property rights, rule of law, I'm going to keep riding with that, which has elevated more people out of poverty in the last hundred years than were lifted out of poverty in all of human history before it. I'm, I'm going to ride out this whole capitalism thing and not allow the statist hysteria of climate change lunacy to take over. You know, I mean, I also just on a on a person to person level, whenever I talk to my liberal friends about this and some of them really they look at me like they've discovered some zoo animal when I tell them that because they the ones who know me know that I am somebody who reads a lot of books and I, you know, I enjoy learning new things and I, I try to be open minded about different ideas and arguments. They th- for some reason, they know I'm rock solid conservative on all this other stuff. But I think they say, you know, blah, blah, raised Catholic and, you know, look at his parents, they're conservative or, you know, they have some. But on climate change, they figure, well, you can't really not be a believer in that whole thing. And when I look at them and I say, not only not a believer, why, why do you think I don't believe? And what I'm always fascinated by is they assume it's ignorance. And I sit there and I say, I've read the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports from the U.N. stretching back for years I've I've read I don't even know how many hundreds, maybe now even going to the thousands of different opinion articles, editorials, news stories on climate change. Why is it that they think that I'm not worried about this because I don't care about the world ending because I'm, I'm so in the pocket of big oil, which has never given me a dollar that, uh, you know, this, this is what it, it doesn't make any sense, does it? What they don't realize is they have a religious belief. And this always brings me back to, because that's what climate change is, a religious belief. And this brings me back to one of the uh, great, great things we say here on the show, which is that climate change is a religious belief for people who think they are too smart for religion. And they're wrong. If you want to get into the Christmas spirit and drink some delicious coffee while you're doing it, I've got an idea. Get yourself some Black Rifle Coffee and hook somebody else up in your life with a Black Rifle Coffee subscription. I'm a subscriber. I get my coffee delivered every month, and that is what I drink. First thing I do when I go into the hill every day, people know they make fun of me. This is my routine. I go straight back to my office. I grab my Black Rifle, take that K-cup, throw it in the machine, and I'm drinking 100% pure, delicious freedom, courtesy of my friends at Black Rifle Coffee, all right? It is the best-tasting, most energizing Veteran helping, first responder assisting coffee you can get. Black Rifle Coffee is the gift that keeps on giving. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 15% off your order. 
That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Again, one more time, blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. These violations of the INF Treaty cannot be viewed in isolation from the larger path of Russian lawlessness on the world stage. The list of Russia's infamous acts is long. Georgia, Ukraine, Syria, election meddling, Skirpal, and now the Kerch Strait, to name just a few. In light of these facts, the United States today declares it has found Russia in material breach of the treaty and will suspend our obligations as a remedy effective in 60 days unless Russia returns to full and verifiable compliance. Drawing a line in the sand here, Secretary of State Pompeo saying that the U.S. within 60 days better see Russia start to do what it says it's supposed, it will do under a treaty called the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, INF Treaty. Uh, Pompeo saying, look, you guys are coming to compliance or we're, we're stepping out of this treaty, which means that we can start developing things that we you know, said we wouldn't and... Uh, it means that, you know, there's going to be consequences for Russian perceptions of its own security as a result of this. Uh, Russia has developed multiple battalions of SSC-8 missiles, according to Pompeo, which falls out, which puts them in violation of this treaty that goes back to the Cold War. And it means that it's a, these are a direct menace to Europe. And this is a way of directly threatening NATO and NATO allies, uh, that our NATO allies in Europe. And, you know, this is uh, this undermines trust between us and the Russians, such as it is. I mean, not that we trust the Russians all that much. But, you know, this is a very it's a bold statement from Pompeo today. It's a clear statement. And, and I think everybody knows, unlike with the Obama administration, when this administration, when Secretary of State Pompeo, when President Trump draws a red line, guess what? That red line's going to be enforced. There's not going to be some erasing of it. They're not going to say, oh, just kidding. And, you know. No, they're going to make sure that the Russians fall into compliance or suffer the consequences. And then that just also brings me to, you know, one of the, one of the storylines that's out there that just annoys me to no end. And that is that Trump is soft on Russia. Trump maybe has a certain personal affinity for the, the character that's in his head of who Putin is. But the Trump administration's policies matter a whole lot more and the trump administration on when it comes to policy is strong on russia more so than his predecessor was not even close really obama's whole hot mic moment with medvedev where you know i will i'll have more flexibility after my election you know obama was always trying to appease everybody including the russians obama was the appeaser in chief and now you're always hearing about how trump is so in bed with the russians well Here's what Trump's Secretary of State says about Russia on the world stage in front of countless members of the international press. Play clip two. Russia hasn't embraced Western values of freedom and international cooperation. Rather, it has suppressed opposition voices and invaded the sovereign nations of Georgia and of Ukraine. Moscow has also deployed a military-grade nerve agent on foreign soil right here in Europe, in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention to which it is a party. Russia has violated the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty for many years. The list goes on. 
We have to account for the world order of today in order to chart the way forward. Russia has not embraced Western values, he says, suppresses opposition voices, invades sovereign nations. I mean, he is calling Russia out in clear and in unambiguous terms. And, oh, by the way, we've also sent more lethal assistance than the Obama administration did to Ukraine, which is the single biggest military concern right now for the Russian government. We've sent naval trainers. We've sent people to Ukraine to assist in all kinds of military operations and, you know, to provide them with uh, the, the training and the know-how so that they can really fight back effectively against the Russians. Right now, the big problems that the Ukrainians have, and you see this in the Kerch Strait crisis, is that the Russians have them completely outmatched when it comes to uh, their Air Force and Navy. I mean, the Russian Navy and Air Force just dwarf what the Ukrainians can put out there. Remember, I mean, for the Ukrainians, there's something very bittersweet about this whole thing. Uh, not Sorry, not bittersweet. Uh, bitter. <laughs> there's, there's no sweetness. Very bitter about this whole thing because, you know, they had at one point a very large nuclear arsenal at the, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And they, as part of the um, agreement that they had uh, with the with the Budapest Memorandum, where we agreed, the Budapest Memorandum on Security Assistance, we, we agreed, along with the UK and, yes, Russia, to protect their national integrity, their sovereignty, if they gave up their nuclear weapons. Russia gave up their nukes, and guess what? I'm sorry, Ukraine gave up their nukes, and guess what? Now it's being picked apart by the Russians. We are not really holding up our end of the deal in the Budapest Memorandum. Now, I don't think we should go to war with Russia over Ukraine, honestly, under any circumstances. So start with that. But we certainly can give them assistance and, and provide them with help to make it harder for Russia to just piece by piece pull the country apart and, and consume it, which is really what the Russian plan is here. So, you know, I, I just get frustrated with this because we keep hearing about how Trump and Putin, Trump and Putin, I mean, this has become an obsession on the left. And I, I just... I just don't think it's I just don't think it's reflective of reality. I think it's something that liberals like to say. They think they sound smart when they say it. Uh, they get a kick out of, you know, pushing this issue in front of, you know, in, in conservatives faces all the time. But when you look at policy and you look at what is really moving the needle, uh, you know, the Trump administration, it's just a more muscular administration in every sense. It's just less willing to be deferential. It's less willing to go along to get along. And that that's what, at least certainly what I think America should be. You know, we should lead. You know, leadership doesn't mean what's the consensus, I'll do that. On the world stage or on any stage for that matter. This is the very definition of the deep state. The deep state is that... The intelligence agencies do things, conclude, conclude things, make conclusions, but then the elected officials are prevented from knowing about this. So this, if we aren't told about this, if I'm not allowed to know about these conclusions, then I can't have oversight. And so then the state grows, the intelligence, the deep state grows and has more and more power. So I've read in the media that the CIA has said with high confidence that the crown prince was involved with killing Khashoggi. I have not seen that intelligence, nor have I even seen the, the conclusions. And today there's yet another briefing, and I'm being excluded from that. So really, this is the deep state at work, that your representatives don't know what is going on in the intelligence agency. 
So that was last week. Senator Rand Paul obviously very uh, upset about the fact that he didn't feel like he was getting full access to the intelligence, uh, the the information involving Kosho- uh, involving M- MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, in the Khashoggi murder. And so, sure enough, even though we had, remember we we heard from. Mattis and Pompeo last week on this one, they saw everything. And I think it's so funny. I think a lot of journalists don't realize that the Secretary of Defense, if, if he wants to see something, the, the CIA shows it to him. There's no, there's no, oh, sorry, sorry, guy who runs the U.S. military, person, person in charge of the Pentagon. That's too sensitive for you. That, that does not exist. That is not a thing. Uh, and, and, and true also of the Secretary of State. Um, but... Mattis and Pompeo, SecDef and SecState, they had this to say about this. Just this is as a refresher before we get into the latest today on this. This is what Mattis and, and Pompeo said last week, play four. We have no smoking gun that the crown prince was involved, not the intelligence community or anyone else. There is no smoking gun. There is no direct reporting connecting the crown prince to the order to murder Jamal Khashoggi. That's all I can say. No direct information connecting him to Khashoggi's murder. That's what they said. Today, Lindsey Graham comes out of a briefing with Gina Haspel, the CIA director, who looks like the world's most unassuming librarian. For those of you who, for those of you who don't understand this, this is when people say to me, look, you were in the CIA? You don't look like you are in the CIA. I'm like, why? Because I don't have, you know, a pocket protector and, and wander the hallways muttering to myself in, a, in an ill-fitted button-up sweater because that's that's what you generally that's what you generally get at the cia think mad professor not james bond and you'll be much closer to the uh archetype of of what a of what a cia you know bureaucrat is like anyway um but lindsey graham came out of the hospital briefing today and and here's and i i I knew lindsey was going to say this because you know he's he's really strutting his stuff you know letting his feathers kind of flutter or I don't know if that's really a thing you know what I'm saying Lindsey Graham he's walking around with his chest pumped up after his puffed out gosh I am my metaphors are getting mixed I'm terrible at this today uh after yes he saved the Kavanaugh hearing in part so yes I and I kind of will forever love Lindsey for that but I I think he's pushing this Khashoggi thing a little bit too far play five I went into the briefing believing it was uh, virtually impossible for an operation like this to be carried out without the Crown Prince's knowledge. Uh, I left the briefing with high confidence that my initial assessment of the situation is correct. Here's my takeaway. Um, that Saudi Arabia is a strategic ally and the relationship is worth saving, but not at all cost. We'll do more damage to our standing in the world and our national security by ignoring MBS than dealing with him. Uh, MBS, the crown prince, is a wrecking ball. I think he's complicit in the murder of Mr. Khashoggi to the highest level possible. You know, I I don't want to overly parse. That was from today. I don't want to overly parse Lindsay's words, but complicit or responsible for you know, complicit means you know you're, you're, you you bear some responsibility. Did he give the order or not? You know, did he order the red, so to speak? In this case, the assassination. And 
The answer to that better be 100% yes or else what are we even really talking about? But let's just assume for a second. And I, you know, I, I tire of the Khashoggi story just because, one, I know that it, it ultimately doesn't go anywhere. And this falls into that realm of foreign policy where there are a lot of people in the establishment media and, and in politics who love to talk about foreign policy because it's, you know, it sounds interesting and they think they sound smart when they're doing it. But it's all pretty irrelevant. I mean, it doesn't, nothing's going to change. They don't have any ideas or solutions or any bold vision for anything. It's just kind of more of the same. But you get the sense that a lot of these senators are excited to share with everybody that now they can name, like, the main ethnic groups in X, Y, or Z country, and they want to kind of strut their stuff. Uh, but, you know, Lindsey Graham on the Khashoggi situation, what are we really going to do? We're going to not deal with the leader of Saudi Arabia? That's not an option if we're going to deal with Saudi Arabia. Right. I mean, would would we as a as a sovereign nation, would we continue a relationship uh, with a country that said that they would not meet with President Trump, that their their president will no longer take phone calls from Trump, will no longer have any relationship with the president of the United States? I think the answer that's I mean, we've never really come up against that before, but I think the answer is no. And why also should we abandon all U.S. foreign policy interests in Saudi Arabia because of this one incident? What is the what is the acceptable punishment? I mean, how do we get people to stop harping on this issue? I mean, there there have been Magnitsky sanctions put in place. The administration has given a statement about this. They've said it's completely unacceptable. What has to be done? And I really mean this. What has to be done for this to no longer be something that we hear about day in and day out? You know, what has to happen for the libs? to stop acting like there's nothing more important for the country to focus on than the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. What do we, what do we have to do? And, and I mean that as an open question. I don't know what they think the answer is. We're going to sanction the leader of Saudi Arabia. We're going to seize his assets. Uh, by the way, he's going to claim that he's innocent, that he's been framed, that this isn't you know, there, there's really no, we have no jurisdiction here. There's no criminal proceeding to speak of. There's nothing that we can do. And he gets no, pro, I mean, I know people don't think of it this way. He gets no due process. We're talking about intelligence collection. The reason that intelligence collection is not a part of, you know, your, your standard, when you're dealing with U.S. citizens, for example, it's not a part of your, of your standard toolkit for law enforcement, is that intelligence collection, a lot of it is what you'd call hearsay in court. A lot of it is, you know, third parties that think they heard this thing from this guy, and you just want the information, and you're making assessments, but it's not all vetted. It's not all clear. And I just also have to take a moment to remind everyone that the same libs who just hammered, hammered the intelligence community, and the CIA in particular, for the uh, intelligence leading up to the Iraq war, and, you know, there was one of the biggest blunders in history, and it was, you know, terrible. The CIA's blood on its hands, all that. They now believe that, that, that we can turn to the CIA, and they'll tell us whether somebody's responsible for giving the order for a murder in a foreign country with 100% certainty. That, that just seems like a standard that has been changed to fit the needs of the moment. That doesn't seem like it's based in any objective reality to me. That doesn't seem like it's something that, you know, we should all just accept on its face. So, and I, I, I don't think that the Khashoggi, uh, the, the Khashoggi murder is enough for America to turn its back on Saudi Arabia. I just, I, 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 as a country, 
Sure, there are individuals we've taken action against them, but it's just not enough. And, you know, it's a cold, cruel world that we live in. But you know, remember, we we look at this situation from the perspective of not just what's happening right now. We might have to deal with this guy, MBS, for the next 40 years. So a lot of whining about this, no solutions. That tells you a lot. Who wants to take a little trip to crazy town with me right now? In this case, Seattle and the, uh, the latest uh, the latest nonsense from Ant- Antifa, um, courtesy of our friend Andy No over at Quillette. We played that audio for you earlier. We, we played yesterday for you, that guy who's essentially saying that, you know, death is coming for you and, you know, people are willing to die for this cause. I mean, look, that guy's clearly, clearly a loon. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not a problem, right? Loons can be very, very dangerous. It just means I'm not saying that his mentality is representative of all of the hardline left, but I'm not saying it's not either. I mean, you know, he's because because the, the radicals on the left are increasingly, I, I think, uh, you know, emboldened is the word they always use for Trump and, and white nationalists. Oh, Trump has emboldened white nationalists. And I'm saying by calling them losers and by being a billionaire who's married to an immigrant from Eastern Europe. I mean, what do you mean he's he's, he's emboldening white nationals? I mean, this is just this is just something that people say because they think it sounds good. But in the case of the far left, you know, you'll, you have important voices in the Democratic Party who will make excuses for these real hardline, hardcore activists slash rioters. And as we know, riots get results, as we saw in France. You know, riots can be a very powerful tool. Uh, but th- this is what I think really shocks people when they dig a little deeper into what it's like out in the and some of these West Coast cities like Portland and Seattle and Oakland, where you have official complicity with some of these riots, or at least a a a kind of apathy slash excuse making for the worst actors on the left. You know, this is why you had Occupy ICE in Portland for a while where people were you know harassing an ICE office there. They gathered outside of it. They have this encampment and you know, they could have cleared it, but, you know, they don't want to clear it. They could have taken action, but they don't want to. You know, when they have these protesters who start getting rowdy and violent and breaking laws and the police don't swoop in, you know, you'll have some, you know, the mayor of Portland, for example, and, and, and other prominent leftists in local politics, depending on the city we're talking about, they'll say, yeah, well, you know, we, we want to give them, remember in Baltimore, we wanted to give them space to destroy? That's a perfect example. You know, that Black Lives Matter, whatever, that riot. I mean, I know you can't even really call it a protest. They're burning things down. And they said it was because they wanted to give those those protesters space to destroy. That was the either the police chief or the mayor of Baltimore. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but Andy, who was uh, was gathered or, or rather was was around a gathering of 150 self-described anti-fascist protesters in downtown Seattle. Um, and there was a, a conservative group that says it is a constitutionalist group there. The a- Antifa has, the, has the, the flag of the Soviet Union flying, first of all. So start with that. I mean, these people are celebrating a, a genocidal regime. I don't even think they realize that it's a genocidal regi- regime because they're, they're ignorant of history and they're generally not very smart. Um, but... Andy had an exchange with a police officer, a police officer that I thought was really interesting. And 
is indicative of a much more widespread problem. Play 15. At some point you're inciting conflict, and then we're going to take some action and remove you from the area. Do you understand that? How am I inciting okay. conflict? Oh. Because we're, we're ending up in confrontation here. It becomes a, this can become a public safety issue okay. where it's difficult for us to manage without with people potentially getting hurt. Okay. Okay. Now, if you want to protest, you have the absolute right to exercise your I'm not protesting. Okay. You, you have a right to, to be where you want to be to a certain extent as well. Okay? Uh-huh. But if we're creating a... If we're inciting a potential conflict. Okay, just let me know when uh, you think that I'm doing that and how I can de-escalate. Okay. So, look, I know the cops here have a tough job. I get it, okay? And they really just want everybody to go home with all their teeth in place and and, and all the rest. I I, I get that, too. But I also think that what you see here is is a more commonplace issue on, on the left uh, or, or when you're dealing with the left, and that is that because they're willing to escalate to violence, it becomes your problem and your rights are truncated. Right? You see this on the college campuses. The, the presence of a conservative speaker is a safety issue, and that's why conservatives are not allowed on the campus. It's not that, it's not that they're shutting down speech. It's a safety issue, they will say. And actually, the uh, Young America's Foundation... I think just won a lawsuit against Berkeley, uh, very much related to this, where you know Berkeley and, and these other schools will say, you know, we can't have conservatives come and speak because the security costs are too high, you know, because it's a safety issue. Well, I'm I'm sorry, but that doesn't fly. I mean, you're you're not allowed to eliminate somebody's First Amendment rights because other people, you know, you can't give them a heckler or in this case a rioter's veto because other people don't want them to be speaking and that's what this police officer was was just dancing around the edge of doing here and he's just there with a camera he's just the, just antifa knows him they've now and they've been threatening him but he, he gets death threats i mean antifa is aware that he is exposing their idiocy on a regular basis and so whenever they see him they get very you know very aggravated and and vengeful and everything else. Uh, But for a cop to come up to you and say that they're going to remove you, which, you know, sounds a lot like, you know, come with us or else you're going to get arrested because there's a there's a safety threat here from the people around you who are going to attack you. I mean, this is almost it's almost like they were going to arrest Andy for his own safety. You know, that was that was the and look at extreme circumstances. I guess you could come up with sounds like something out of a movie. You could come up with a situation, though, where that's. That's probably the best move in terms of pure safety. But, you know, you, you, we have to be on guard for this because the Alinskyite left is willing to raise the temperature and raise the stakes to get the outcome that they want, which is shutting down speech, not allowing people to expose the left for what it really is. And if all they have to do is threaten violence and then they have authorities, law enforcement, politicians who say, well, hold on, you know, we can't allow, we can't allow there to be this, this, you know, this speech that incites the other side so much. Uh, Not that incites against the other side, but that the other side takes as incitement for its own violence against the speaker. Uh, Then, then we really don't have much of a first amendment anymore. Then we don't really have the protections that we think we do. So I, I just would know that, you see this happening. It happens on campuses. It happens in some of these protests where 
the, the, the craziest, loudest, angriest voices are just able to, to create a disturbance or, or, or create a perception that there's imminent violence, and then that perception alone is enough for the person against whom the violence would be committed to be in some way punished or have his rights or her rights violated. So this is, look, the left comes at us with everything they've got. We've got to be aware of all of their tools. I remember all the information, security technology training that we have when I was at CIA. And, you know, it's scary how easy it is, not just for the bad guys and the hackers to get into your stuff, especially if you use public Wi-Fi, but even for big companies that you think you can trust, they get hacked. And then that information that they have, all that stuff they've been gathering on you, guess what? Then it's out there. All right. You need to protect yourself. That's why you need ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a wall between you and the bad guys by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. It anonymizes your internet browsing as well. This is what you need. It costs less than seven bucks a month, right? It's just worth it. Think of it as insurance for all of your online activities. Protect your activity today online and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck for three months free with a one-year package. Expressvpn.com slash buck. The tariff rates will be slashed significantly. This according to the Chinese. The number that was put on the table in our private meetings was um, over a trillion. Here's the key point. They're going to cut their tariffs. They're going to lower their non-tariff barriers, okay? Right. And that opens the door for American exporters, all our farmers, all our manufacturers, even our automobile uh, producers that export to China. If you give us open markets, we will clobber them. We will sell everything. Uh, we are the most competitive economy in the world. We'll knock them dead, and we'll lower the trade deficit while we're doing it. So there you have Larry Kudlow saying that there's greener pastures ahead, bluer skies, all that stuff. Trump still knows what he's doing on tariffs. We just need to see this through. Is he right? How are we handling this situation with China? To answer that question, we've got Gordon Chang with us. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and a columnist. Gordon, great to have you back. Thank you so much, Buck. Well, Gordon, what do you make of where we are right now in the wake of the G20 sit-down with Xi Jinping and President Trump? We've got this 90-day window to try and hammer out some kind of a deal. Uh, has has Trump been playing this right so far? I think President Trump has done a great job, at least up until Saturday. On Saturday at the dinner with Xi Jinping at the G20 in Argentina, I think you have to score the round for the Chinese um, for a number of reasons. I, I know that they've made a lot of promises, um, but they've made a lot of promises in the past, and they haven't been really very good in keeping them. Also, you know, on a 90-day truce, it means the Chinese are going to steal more U.S. intellectual property. And I don't know exactly what that number is, but it's going to be in the tens of billions of dollars because each year the Chinese steal hundreds of billions of dollars. So we're giving them like a 70, 80 billion dollar uh, free pass on more U.S. IP. Um, we've heard a lot of what China will do. Uh, it would be nice to think that they actually do it. Um, but at this particular time, I think we just need to be very concerned because Xi Jinping believes in a state-dominated economy, believes in closing up China to foreign competitors. And this just does not sound like the Xi Jinping that we've known for about five and a half, six years. 
where are the areas that you think he is willing to, you know, bend? What are the what are the negotiables as you see them on this tariff and trade issue, Gordon, from the Chinese perspective? And where are we probably just, you know, screaming into an empty room trying to get them to change their ways? I think that they will reduce tariffs. Um, but I don't think they'll actually mm-hmm. reduce non-tariff barriers. And if they reduce some of them, they'll put uh, new ones up. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, I think, not going to be we'll, – we'll win a little bit on terms of trade deficit, but not terribly much. But the most important thing, Buck, is not trade deficit, um, although that is something that we would want. The most important thing is the theft of U.S. intellectual property. And I don't see China um, slowing that down at all. You know, as we've seen from the NSA report and also from the report from the U.S. Trade Representative, um, they've been stealing much more stuff. It ramped up a lot in the middle of 2017. And I don't see making those structural changes uh, so that they would no longer steal our stuff. And in terms of, you know, the the Chinese economy's pain up to this point versus our pain, I mean, the Chinese market I know has gotten – gotten hit pretty hard uh and and obviously people are a little more concerned about the u.s market you know gordon how do you assess our leverage in in dealing with them on this issue do you think that the american people are are willing to see this through you know people a few months ago were looking at farmers who were suffering a bit because of china's retaliatory tariffs on our retaliatory tariffs much delayed tariffs uh, but the but farmers in the Midwest were saying, well, you know, I, I want to give Trump the leeway for him to actually try his policy, see his policy, uh, policy through to fruition. Do you think that we I mean, is it possible that we could stick together on this one and, and actually get to that point? Or are you worried that we're going to buckle under the pressure of the economic pain we're going to feel? I think that uh, political will is the big question mark. When you look at the objective factors, we have overwhelming leverage over China. When you look at trade deficit, you look at the size of the economy, you look at trade dependency, all of these uh, factors uh, show that we've got much more pull over the Chinese than they have over us. And it's not even close, Buck. The only thing that is uh, unknown, and it's really the most important factor, is political will. And, um, you know, forget the American people for a moment. On Saturday, we saw that the president of the United States, who is passionate about this issue, didn't have the political will to confront the Chinese. What he decided to do was to go for delay. Now, maybe that's the right decision, but I actually don't think so. Because what we're doing right now is, you know, we Americans think, you know, if we give them a concession, which we did by not going through with the scheduled tariff increases from 10 to 25 percent. We think, oh, if we give them a concession, they'll be generous to us and they'll return the gratitude. That's not the way the Chinese think. That's not the way the Chinese treat other countries. You just got to keep the pressure up until they have no choice but to do the right thing. We don't have the will to do that. And I think we'll eventually get there because the Chinese will push us too far. But I'm not liking what I'm seeing out of the Trump administration for the last three or four days. And I certainly don't like it when I hear people say, oh, you know, it's different this time, Um, because for an administration official to say that, I think it's just inappropriate. And we're speaking to Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, is there a future that's a a win win for everybody here? Is that something that's possible, you think? Is, Is there a world in which at some point down the line, China liberalizes its trade policy, stops cheating in its trade policy, and therefore gets richer and better. I mean, I, I feel like at the center of all this free trade thinking is 
the rising tide that lifts all boats. Is that a possible future for the Chinese as well? Or are they going to basically just lose out by not continuing to cheat the way that they have? Well, Buck, it is possible, especially if the Communist Party is no longer ruling China. Um, if Xi Jinping is around, um, he doesn't believe in win-win solutions. He doesn't even believe in the notion of comparative advantage, which is the fundamental concept that underlies the global trading system. So it's extremely unlikely there's a win-win solution as long as Xi Jinping is around, as long as the Communist Party is around. We can get there, but China's got to be a much better China than it's been for the last four decades. Before we let you go, Gordon, how are we doing with North Korea? Well, um, we're not doing too well, um, especially we haven't been doing too well since the middle or so of May. Up until May or so, uh, President Trump's policy was extraordinarily effective. Um, but, you know, since then, he's let the pressure off. Um, and he's done that because he wants to create this favorable environment so that uh, Kim Jong-un can make the right decision, as uh, the president talked about um, before the Singapore summit. Um, but the North Koreans are, are not returning the gratitude. Um, they're not returning the gesture. And so I think President Trump's going to have to go back to that maximum pressure campaign. He may not like to do it, but unless he wants Kim Jong-un to make him look a little bit foolish, he's going to have to go back to what made him successful through the middle of May. And if not, Kim Jong-un is just going to run over not only the United States, but South Korea. We're going to probably lose our ally there as Moon Jae-in, the pro-North Korean president, takes advantage of this, as the Chinese take advantage of it, as the Russians take advantage of it. President Trump can still win this, but he's got to change course. Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China. Also go check out his website, gordoncchang.com. Gordon, always great to have you on, my friend. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. All right, team, we got uh, more coming up here in just a moment. Remember, if you want to send your thoughts, best way to do it, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Send it in and uh, stay with us. People are having a hard time trusting social media sites these days because of all the conservative bias that we see, meaning that they're banning people, they're kicking us off platforms for speaking the truth in many cases. You don't want to have to deal with that. And if you want your voice to be heard in many ways, Snippy.com is the place for you. Thousands of Team Buck have already joined Snippy.com, and they're already on there posting and chatting and expressing their opinions, all right? Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but it guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. Everyone's free to express their thoughts and share their opinions. It's totally free to join, open to everyone. So join us at Snippy.com. Let your opinion matter. No shadow banning and no suppression of conservative thought ever now with an updated user interface and exciting new features also available in the apple app store and now available for android snippy is your new alternative social media check it out snippy.com i just had a follow-up for you about sure. impeachment because you were talking about the hypothetical standard that the gop set in the yeah. 90s what did you mean by that standard and what do you how does that apply to today with trump well i just think um you know i i think what what Overall, when you look at the broad stroke, they took uh, how far they would take um, and how how granularly they would dig into that process. And so, um, sorry, I'm in the middle of office picking, so I just like I can't right now. I'm sorry. No, no, I understand. You've been supportive of impeachment for a while, though. So, what do you think after the Russia developments? Do you think 
uh, the Democrats should go in that direction? Well, I, I would be supportive, and I think what we're seeing here is really serious questions with respect to emoluments. I got to tell you, you wouldn't want Ocasio-Cortez to be the captain of your team on trivia night. Uh, just, just a little safety tip for me to you. You would not want her to be the one in charge of getting the right answers to the trivia questions, okay? It would not go well. She's gone the hallway there. This is what you know reporters do sometimes. They they come up and ask it. It's look, it's the people's house, right? You're you're in Congress. They come up though and they try to ask you questions. I've done it before. Ask questions the hallway to members of Congress. So I understand she's on the move, everything else, but she's like, well, like, I just think overall, like, when you look at, like, the broad stroke they took, like, how far they would take and how granularly they would dig into that process. Ocasio-Cortez is so fascinating, I think, to conservatives. You know, the left is already throwing up the usual defenses. Oh, it's because she's a woman. Oh, it's because she's a minority. That's why conservatives are so hard on her. No, it's because she's so symbolic, really, or really emblematic. I mean, she's somebody who is, in a sense, the epitome of a progressive millennial. And now you finally have that progressive millennial in a national political spotlight. And what you see is somebody who has picked up all of the the buzzwords and the slogans. I mean, she's certainly been around a lot of social justice talk for a long time and has also understood that there are just phrases that you can say. There are things that you can parrot. I mean, just repeat that you have heard that are a way of signaling to your own side that you are one of them, that the the very specific word choice saying things like talking about always democracy and and social justice and now these days saying things like undermining institutions whenever you're talking about Trump. You know, there are certain words, redistributive, throw in, throw in the term redistributive when you mean Marxist. Yeah. Throw in the term uh, equality when you really mean special rights for or new rights created for. There are, there are, there's a way of speaking that signals to people that you are of a certain mindset. And Ocasio-Cortez has that down. But what you see with her is those those phrases, those words, there's very little knowledge beneath them. And knowledge does matter. Knowledge matters. You, you, you can't, in fact, just go on, on style. There has to be something below that because without knowledge, it's very hard to have wisdom. And without wisdom, it's very difficult to have good judgment. Uh, but what you see in the case of Ocasio-Cortez is somebody who sounds the part emotes the way she's supposed to, connect, uh, connects the way she's supposed to on the left, but does not have the underlying substance to back it up. And I don't think she's going to get it anytime soon either. And they're just going to continue to prop her up and, and back her up. It really reminds me in a way, look, Obama had a much more imp- impressive academic pedigree, although people always get mad at me and say this, you know, the guy was, you know, a student in the, in the 80s or whatever it was, in the late 70s, at, I guess late, no, in the 70s at Occidental College, which is fine, but, you know, it's not like this guy was some academic superstar. He somehow got into Columbia as a transfer, and then all of a sudden is, like, at the top of Harvard Law Review. That's a very unusual rise for someone to make, and there are, I think, very honest questions to ask about how much of that was understanding the system versus real academic superstardom. 
That all said, he clearly has a more impressive academic pedigree than Ocasio-Cortez. But Obama was a guy who would get away with saying really flimsy things on a regular basis. You know, I, I saw today on, on Twitter, I, I would give him credit, but I can't remember who did it. I'm just, I'm so much of my life is spent reading it online. But uh, there, you had somebody who was uh, making the case that, you know, Dan Quayle, who is actually a, a very smart guy, uh, Dan Quayle misspelled potato once and was turned into a laugh line and, and people said he was stupid. I mean, Dan Quayle equals stupid is a complete construct of the media. And I think that's a very good example of how the two sides, or rather how they treat people from the two sides of the media. You know, Ocasio-Cortez can say endless dumb thing after another. Just one foolish, ignorant thing. And, and they'll say it's a gaffe. Oh, it's adorable. Oh, she's adorkable with those numbers that she got wrong. It's like not that big a deal. But... When a Republican says anything that's wrong, they're in, an idiot who can't tie, can't tie their shoes. And it's very clear that this is, this is the standard that they've been operating under, this double standard. Uh, and with Ocasio-Cortez, you're going to continue to see this. Um, I also like, though, that this is somebody who is part of this vanguard of new, the kind of new age socialism in this country. This new wave. I mean, you now have, and Obama paved the way for this. You know, we forget how far down the road of progressivism the Obama administration really took us. But after eight years of Obama, the way was cleared for the next generation of Democrats in elected office to say, you know what? Don't you like some of the stuff we did? Well, to, to complete it, you know, if you want to really savor the flavor and get all the all the best free stuff the government has to offer you got to go full socialist. You can't do this quasi-socialist thing. And the truth is that a lot of the Democrats, even more mainstream Democrats, know this and understand that they are playing a role in this transformation of the country. But it's really the Sanders-Warren-Ocasio-Cortez wing of the party, even though Ocasio-Cortez hasn't even been sworn in yet as a, as a member of Congress. But it's, it's people who fall into that part of the Democrat spectrum. They are the ones... Uh, they're the ones who are openly saying, you know, we, we would like to be socialist. Uh, we, we want this country to be a Democrat socialist country. And, you know, that designation of Democrat socialist doesn't really make all that much difference because it's, you know, socialism starts with some very basic concepts. And once they're in place, yes, there there are more extreme versions of it than others. But when the government has essentially complete authority or, or takes upon itself the right to dispense with property rights, then it can dispense with individual rights. And then from there, things just get really bad really quickly. Uh, it, maybe it takes a bit of time. Maybe it's not right away. Um, but once we start down that slippery slope, things do get uh, very, very dark indeed. So Ocasio-Cortez, oh, on, on impeaching Trump, I just would say, that uh, the only thing that would prevent them from impeaching Trump is if they think that it's not in their political interest to do it. Um, and and I, do not, I do not think the Democrats have enough self-control. I do not believe the Democrat Party has the impulse control to avoid giving in to the rabid left-wing base 
and impeaching President Trump. I, I just think that when push comes to shove, there are going to be too many people wearing pink hats, marching, yelling, screaming, you know, wearing Handmaid's Tail costumes, saying that Trump is Hitler and, you know, KKK USA and all this crazy stuff. There'll be too many of them and they will go forward with impeachment, even if it is not in their political interest to do so. I certainly think it's a good thing that President George H.W. Bush is receiving the honor that he earned and that he deserves as a veteran, a war hero, a former president, uh, somebody who spent decades in the service of his country and did so with a tremendous amount of, of decency and, and kindness by all accounts. But I also think that over this holiday season, it's important for us all to remember as we, as we get closer to Christmas that not everyone who deserves uh, a hero's remembrance gets it. In fact, very, very few of those who have led exemplary lives, who have sacrificed a tremendous amount in the service of their country, uh, and who are, in fact, by every, by every definition uh, of the word, heroes, very, very few of them are, are celebrated as such. And this really, uh, this really struck me. A fellow named Patrick Mead wrote this online. He is a, uh, he's a minister and a guitarist. And this got a lot of attention over the weekends. A lot of people shared this. He wrote the following. I had to place my father in dementia care today and drive away. I can only be there every couple of weeks. So I taped this to his door. I want the staff to know who the man in number 14, room 14, truly is. And he writes this, speaking from the perspective of his dad, who is now in full-time care because of his dementia. Quote, My name is Bill Mead. I was born in abject poverty. I became a warrior. U.S. Navy, Korean War, Korean War era. I then laid aside my weapons and became a minister and a missionary. I traveled the world spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing hope, medicine, and love to the United States, Europe, South America, and Africa. I am slowly leaving this earth for my heavenly home. This may take a while. Thank you for remembering who I was and who I am. I am a man, a warrior, a missionary, a father, a friend, and much more. So, in a way, I think now we can take a moment to step back and say, how would we treat the people in our lives if we assumed that many of them had overcome tremendous challenges, had in their own way served, had in their own way uh, been a, a soldier, a soldier of Christ, if not a soldier on the actual battlefield. How would we treat people if we didn't know but always took the approach that there was something beautiful and great and worthwhile within them. I, I, I understand that over the holidays it can feel like 
we are saturated with all this uh, commercialism, this desire to try to get nice gifts and take these vacations. And, and that's, look, people work hard. They deserve to show their love for their family members and friends with gifts, to, uh, to do things that you know, bring us all together, whether it's a big dinner or vacation or whatever it may be. But I also think that there's room for reflection on how we all go about our, our day-to-day lives. And one of the most important things, because it's one of the areas where we can always improve, where self-assessment and self-improvement are never out of place. And that is how we, uh, how we treat one another. And I think there's a reason why this uh, man, Patrick Mead's message, written in the voice of his father for the staff at the facility that's taking care of him in his period of dementia, really resonated with people because this man, Bill Mead, was a warrior, was a missionary, was a man working in the service of God, and deserves all of the respect and kindness and support that 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 entails and a lot of the people in our lives are also in their own way warriors for what is good we should give them that respect and that support as much as we possibly can the show ain't over yet folks It's time for Roll Call. All right, it's Tuesday, which gets us halfway to hump day. So it's like half hump day. That doesn't sound like that much fun. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to have your message read on air. If you don't, by the way, just write at the top for you only or don't read on air. That way it'll just be to me and the team. All right, we have John who writes, all right, man. I had to chime in here about all this best accent talk. Your best is Soros by far. Thank you very much for the Soros talk. Uh, haha. Also caught a new show on Netflix you'd like. It's called Bodyguard. It's set in the UK, and the main character is an anti-terrorism intelligence officer. The show has a very realistic deep state twist on things. It also builds up quick. You'll be hooked in 10 minutes. So I watched the first episode almost all the way through of that show, John, and I thought the opening sequence with the suicide bomber was very, very well done, and then I got really bored as the, as the episode went on. So I haven't gotten yet to the interesting deep state component of it yet, but I'm willing to go back and, and watch again, because you're not the only person. There have been a number of people who have told me that it's a very, very good show and that I should really... Uh, give it a shot. Uh, Rob writes, oh, wait, no, wait, we got more from John. Sorry. Also, caught a new show on that. Oh, no, you know, that is the also. Okay, so we got that. Rob writes, Mission Complete brought a tear to my eye, too. Your thoughts on that image of man's best friend make you trustworthy. Well, thank you, Rob. Rob's referring to uh, George H.W. Bush's service dog, Sully, who is just a, it was just a very powerful very powerful image, very powerful photo, and perhaps no surprise, but somebody from Slate.com, which is one of these left-wing news sites, one of many, many left-wing sites, all for the millennial pajama boy generation, wrote something that was more or less telling us that Sully had only been with the president for six months, to which I, I had to think, why would anybody take their time to write this? 
Uh, here, let me give you the uh, Sully. This is from Slate. Sully H.W. Bush is a service dog who had been with the president for six months, not his lifelong companion. This is what an author at Slate decided to write, as if we needed to be told that. And, and I would just note that the bond between a human being and his or her dog is not a time-constrained thing. And anybody who's ever had a dog and had a very close relationship with a dog understands why that image was so powerful. I, I just wish the left would stop being such a bunch of foolish haters, but they, they can't help themselves. Uh, Thea writes, Whoa, first Veep, then president was John Adams, one of the greatest men that lived and extremely underrated. We would not have had our country without him. Uh, yes, you are correct. The last time before H.W. Bush, we had a Veep who then became the elected, then was elected to the presidency, not became president because of an assassination or uh, was the fellow that I mentioned yesterday, Martin Van Buren. The issue is, is whether somebody was elected to be president after being a vice president. Uh, so there you, there you go. You are correct. John Adams was vice president and then became president of the United States. Judy writes, Titanic, are you kidding? Everyone dies. Save myself the money. I like you anyway. Original Saturday Squad, Shields High. Judy, I'm not saying that I like Titanic. I think it's a sappy, pretty ridiculous movie, all things considered. I'm not somebody who who is pro-Titanic as a film. I'm just saying we all saw that movie. And people who tell you that they haven't seen Titanic, I, I just think they're playing a little fast and loose with the truth. I think it's very clear that Titanic is a movie that pretty much everybody who sees movies probably went to at some point in time. Kimberly writes, my favorite story uh, is the Christmas story. It's beautiful on its own. It deserves no distractions. We made it the meeting of our holiday and I agree about Santa. Boom, Buck. I got a lot of pushback. However, I felt uncomfortable telling my children Santa was real. As a person of faith, I did not want them to think the Christmas story was another tall tale. I made a choice, and we still have wonderful celebrations. My favorite story is when my oldest son in public said, Look, Mom, it's the Christmas man. Yeah, I don't really understand why we're all so just quick to tell our kids things that are, are not true. Uh, I, I don't know why that's something that we're all okay with, with the, with the Santa Claus story. We could just say there's this myth of Santa, and, to, and we could just tell it like a story without convincing kids, oh, no, this is a thing that happens. I don't know. I'm not sure that I agree with that approach, but I'm, I'm open to my mind being changed on it. I know it's a tradition, and people do it, and I sound like a Grinch and all that stuff. Remember, the Grinch has a happy ending. The Grinch, in the end, realizes that Whoville, everyone's happy, even though their presents have been taken and the Grinch's heart kind of melts in, in a good way. Josh writes, Shields High Buck, there's no genre more misogynistic than rap music. Gonna have to ban an entire industry. Merry Christmas to you and to Miss Molly. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for writing in. And, and yes, there's clearly a double standard when it comes to uh, banning misogyny in artwork and music specifically. When it comes to hip hop music, there's a there's a lot of not even casual misogyny. There's a lot of really aggressive misogyny in hip hop music. And we're told that that's just the way that it is, that this is just something that people can accept. And I 
I wish that was, uh, I wish that we had a more clear standard on this one. How about that? Johan writes, listening as I write this, and the solution to covering the border would be to deputize the many Americans who would do it for free. Buck, you have the best voice, including today, and pace of delivery of all the talk show hosts. You are the WFB of our time, William F. Buckley. Growing up in the 60s on Long Island, the movie that meant Christmas to me was Laurel and Hardy in the March of the Wooden Soldiers. Wow, I've actually seen that many times, too. That's interesting, Johan. I forgot about that movie. Buck, one thing I disagree with you about is coffee. We have a supermarket here that always has one brand on sale. Recently, I got the big can of chock full of nuts for $4.99. In the queue, we also have cans of Maxwell House. The thing I am sure many veterans work for those companies, too. Now, something I don't like that is now happening is the inclusion of first responders with the military, including the line, thank you for your service. I was okay with my compensation in both, and I'm no fan of the current adoration. But if we are to have it, the military should be the ones that get it. Johan. Uh, so, you know, a few things here. First of all, thank you for your kind words about my voice and delivery. And hopefully you didn't like it more yesterday than you normally do. Cause that means that my, my cold, you know, my cold and sinus infection voice is my best radio voice. Cause today I'm still in, in the misery of all that. Uh, but Hey, if, if you like it, you like it. So I'm just glad you're enjoying the show, but you're, you're very kind and, and your support means a lot as to March of the wooden soldiers. I've seen that many times too. And I, I really like that movie. Uh, I remember liking it as a kid. I can't remember it that well now. And then as to coffee, look, I just, I, I'm friends with the guys who run black rifle. It's a great company. The coffee is really honestly delicious. I mean, it's not just cause they're a sponsor of the show. As you know, they are a sponsor of the show. Their coffee is phenomenal and they're great guys and they're doing really, really good things. As to the issue of first responders and veterans, you know, I can only speak to it from this perspective. I, I, I always feel a little, I, I think there's a bit of um, uh, discomfort that many of us who are civilians who served in the war zones feel when it comes to how, how we're supposed to present what we did or how, especially in my case where I can't even really talk about some of what I did. And you know, I, I can get pretty annoyed sometimes because people say things like, oh, well, you were just an analyst. You were back at Langley. It's like, well, no, actually, I... I actually traveled with military and was armed and was trained to fight. I mean, I was not somebody who was expected to just sit there at a desk, never go outside the wire, never do anything. That said, I was also not a door kicker, not a frontline person at all. Most of my time was spent on on bases. Keep in mind, you could also die on base if there's an ambush or if, not an ambush, uh, an assault or mortar rounds. I mean, so it's not like it's some picnic being on these bases in the war zones either. Uh, but, you know, where, where do we gauge that? And I always think it's interesting, you know, so if somebody was, if somebody served in the Coast Guard, but I served in Iraq and Afghanistan for the CIA, do I, do people tell me thank you for your service or not? Do they tell the person who served in the Coast Guard, thank you for your service? Somebody, you know, you, you get into, and I, I think ultimately it's just serving your country, serving your nation, serving your fellow Americans is a good thing no matter what. And I leave the the verbiage about this uh, to to other people. But yeah, I mean, first responders obviously have a very important role to play in society and what they do is great, but there's a big difference between being a first responder and being an army ranger who served three tours in Afghanistan, right? There's a big difference between being, quite honestly, if we're really going to go there, big difference in being somebody who uh, served in the Air Force for a few years and never went anywhere outside the United States and somebody who did multiple tours as a Marine in Iraq, right? So, you know, and, and I think that we probably do ourselves 
a disservice if we try to parse those things out. So it's just best to say thank you for your service. And those of you who say thank you for your service to me, I always appreciate it. It's it's kind of you to say, but I I joined the CIA for my own reasons. And I joined the CIA because I wanted to help this country after 9-11. And quite honestly, there are many days where I wish I joined the military instead. And I, I think that that's, if I could go back in life and do it over, I probably would do that. Uh, but I did what I thought would be the best way for me to serve at the time. And I, I had my frustrations with it. Um, but, you know, you can see it turns into a complicated discussion pretty quickly. Uh, Josh writes, everyone remembers Die Hard as a Christmas movie, but no one remembers that so was Lethal Weapon. I honestly couldn't choose a winner over those two. Both were iconic action films for, uh, films for their own separate reasons. Your take. Uh, Die Hard as a Christmas movie? I didn't. I'm sorry. Of course, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Uh, Lethal Weapon, though, is a Christmas movie? I didn't know. I'm trying to think back. I haven't, seen, I haven't seen Lethal Weapon in a while, and I've seen it so many times that I probably shouldn't watch it again. I think I've maxed out on Lethal Weapon viewings. Uh, as to which movie is better, Die Hard's a better movie. It's better plot, better execution, better bad guys. Gary Busey's pretty good as a psycho in Lethal Weapon, but... Die Hard is, is arguably the best action movie of all time, all things considered. It's certainly in my top five, uh, up there with Predator and, and a few other movies. So uh, I think Die Hard really almost created its own genre of the smart action thriller. Team, that's going to be it for today. Thank you so much for being here. Please tell somebody about the show. Talk to you tomorrow. Shields high. Oh, guess what I'm doing tonight? I am grilling up a delicious Omaha steak burger for myself, and you should be doing the same. This holiday season, Omaha Steaks is giving an amazing limited-time offer to my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com and enter code BUCK, that's B-U-C-K, into the search bar, you get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now it's only $49.99. With that order, you get four hand-cut top sirloins, two savory pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha Steaks burgers, four snappy kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four perfectly brown potatoes au gratin, four made-from-scratch caramel apple tartlets, plus get four more burgers free. I'm going to be having a burger as soon as I get off air here. Omaha Steaks burgers are incredible, okay? This is a limited-time package for only $49.99. you got to go to omahasteaks.com. Type Buck in the search bar and add the family gift package to your card. Don't wait. The offer is going to end soon. Go to OmahaSteaks.com. Type Buck in the search bar to send the Omaha Steaks family gift package.